Hi, this is Arielle Jack, Student Ministries Director here at New Life Church. Thank you for joining our podcast today. I pray the following presentation encourages, challenges, and inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy the message. Today is the second part of the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. And if you look in your Bibles, you're going to find in Matthew chapter 5, if you open your book, your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, that's where we're going to be today. And the title of this message is Shine and Sustain. Week 2 of this series is Shine and Sustain. And the big idea of the message is this. The world needs God's people to function the way he intended for them to function. Helping preserve God's work in the world and pointing people toward him. I'm just going to say this right off the top of this message. Church, the world needs you. The world needs you. It's, we are a vital part of the ecosystem of this world. And I wanna, I'm going to break that down for you today. The late Peter Marshall, an eloquent, eloquent speaker, and for several years, the chaplain of the United States Senate used to love to tell this story. I'm going to tell it to you today. Here we go. There once was a quiet forest dweller who lived high above the Austrian village along the eastern slopes of the Alps. The old gentleman had been hired many years earlier by the town council to clear away the debris from the pools of water that fed the lovely spring flowing through their town. With faithful, silent regularity, he patrolled the hills, removed the leaves and branches, and wiped away the silt from the fresh flow of water. By and by, the village became a popular attraction for vacationers. Graceful swans floated along the crystal clear spring. Farmlands were naturally irrigated, and the view from restaurants was picturesque. Years passed. One evening, the town council met for its semi-annual meeting. As they reviewed the budget, one man's eye caught the salary figure being paid to the obscure keeper of the spring. Said the keeper of the purse, who is this old man? Why do we keep him on year after year? For all we know, he's doing no good. He isn't necessary any longer. By unanimous vote, they dispensed with the old man's services. For several weeks, nothing changed. But in early autumn, the trees began to shed their leaves. Small branches snapped off and fell into the pools, hindering the rushing flow of water. One afternoon, someone noticed a slight yellowish-brown tint to the spring. A couple days later, the water was much darker. Within another week, a slimy film covered sections of the water along the bank, and a foul odor was detected. The mill, wheel, the mill wheels moved slower, some finally grinding to a halt. Swans left as did the tourists. 
clammy fingers of disease and sickness reach deeply into the village. Embarrassed, the council called a special meeting. Realizing their gross error in judgment, they hired back the old keeper of the spring. And within a few weeks, the river began to clear up. The wheels started to turn, and new life returned. The hamlet and the Alps again. The story carries with it a vivid, relevant analogy directly related to the times that we live in. What the keeper of the springs is to the village, the church is to the world. Let me say that again. What the keeper of the springs is to the village, the church is to our world. The preserving, taste-giving bit of salt mixed with the illuminating, hope-giving rays of light may seem feeble and needless. But God help the society that attempts to exist without them. We've seen them all over the world, wherever the church is, I wouldn't even say extinguished, but driven underground, because the church never really goes away. Driven underground, society starts to break down. And I've talked about this in our last series on the family, how I feel like we're at a turning point in our country, and we've almost entered, I, I would hate, we're post-Christian, I hope people say that, hope that's not true. I hope the church can hear the call of the Holy Spirit to come alive. But we are in that societal downturn that exists right before God gives a people over to a depraved mind. And that, that worries me. That worries me. Okay? You see, the village without the keeper of the springs is a perfect representation of the world system without the salt and light of true Christ followers. Now open your Bible. Five, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. And it says this. Ready? You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be salty, made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And he goes on to say this. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket but rather they put on a lampstand and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This particular section of Scripture follows the Beatitudes. Now I want you to help to understand the progression here. The Beatitudes are all internal redirection for human beings. Then the, uh, he follows up with these two brilliant and uh, searching metaphors of salt and light, which are externally important. They are change agents and qualities. 
So just as the presence of the work of the keeper of the springs in the Alps had far-reaching implications downstream, so does the presence of a church that lives out its internal changes that Christ has brought into us. So the Beatitudes are all about these internal changes, and then we present that internal change in the world around us. Let's deal with salt. So, N.T. Wright, in his Matthew for Everyone study guide, comments on what this passage communicated to the original audience and to us. He says this. The present passage is a kind of gateway to all that follow. And its theme is clear. Jesus is calling the Israel of the day to be Israel indeed. Jesus is calling Israel of the day to be Israel indeed. Um, not, so okay, then he goes on to say, what he says here can now be applied to all Christians, but the original meaning was a challenge to Jesus' own contemporaries. God had called Israel to be the salt of the earth, but Israel was behaving like everyone else with its power politics, its fractional squabbles, its fictional, uh, factional squabbles, yes, it's militant revolutions. How could God keep the world from going bad, the main function of salt in the ancient world, if Israel, his chosen salt, has lost its distinctive taste? And I would put that question to us as a church. How do, do we look different than the world around us? Have we let those internal changes that we talked about in the Beatitudes become who we are, not just a creed that we ascribe to. You know, the Beatitudes and the salt and light metaphors are going to be the, are the preamble to all that comes next. Jesus is going to say a lot of really hard statements. And if we don't have this first part pinned down, it's going to be hard to live the way God called us to live. Blomberg healthily writes, in light of the countercultural perspectives talked about in the Beatitudes, it would be easy to assume that Jesus was calling his followers to a separatistic, quasi-monastic lifestyle. Because when you look at the Beatitudes, it's like, man, I can't, I can't mix. These two worldviews, they don't mix. It can feel that way. So I'm, we must have to kind of cloister ourselves and and it's kind of like a, a quasi-monastic, just separation scenario. But here, Jesus proclaims precisely the opposite. Christians must permeate society as agents of redemption. I love that statement. Christians must permeate society as agents of redemption. Of the numerous things to which salt could refer to in antiquity, it's used as a preservative in food was probably the most basic function. Jesus thus calls his disciples to arrest corruption and prevent moral decay in their world. We as Christians must be careful when reading this passage. I want to make I want to be careful we read it correctly, right? Matthew tells us that we are to be salt of the earth, right? 
It does not tell us to salt the earth. It does not say salt the earth. For millennia preceding the icebox and modern refrigeration, salt was used as the primary agent pre- for preserving food. This is, a, this is a process that takes days. I, I researched it. How do you salt meat? Anybody know, anybody know how to do that? Some of you probably do. Yeah, some guys are like, I don't know how to salt meat. <laughs> From that one, I was like 12. <laughs> Apparently, you take the meat, you pack it in a special kind of salt, and then you let it sit overnight or for two days, and then you take it out, and you rub it all down, and you turn it, and you put it back, and you cover it again, and it takes like a week, and you do this process every day, and it cures the meat, and it preserves it. I bet it tastes really salty, too. I don't think the, uh, the people of the time were salting their food very much because I think a lot of the food they ate was preserved with salt, but they're not like, oh, have a salt shaker? No. But that's what they did. They, it was a process of preserving the, the food so that it didn't go bad. But salt is also a seasoning agent. Now, interestingly enough, when, when salt is applied in correct amounts, let's put it correct amounts, it draws out the full flavor of the food. And you don't taste the salt, you just taste the food more. Has everybody really gone to a really fine dining restaurant? Like really good, like you're paying, we're not talking Burger King here. You're paying more than $15, okay? Anyway, go to a really a fine dining restaurant. I'm gonna tell you, they have dialed in their salt applications really well. And they probably use tons of butter, too. Just saying. If it tastes good, it's got salt and butter, period. You can just make a meal out of it. No. uh, But this is the idea. Salt draws out the flavors, the juices of the food, and makes it more tasty. If used properly. My, My poor sister, when she was first learning how to cook, um, she took one of my mom's recipes, one of our favorite recipes in the family, and she was going to make it for what was her boyfriend who became her fiancé, who is now her husband, made him this meal. And instead of putting um, a teaspoon of salt into the recipe, she had mixed it up. She, she kind of read and she jumped in her eyes, and the, 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 rest, the, the ingredient before it was was three cups. So not being a, a cook for a long period of time, she didn't register in her mind that that's crazy. And she put in three cups of salt into a meal that, for two. And she served it. And she married the guy. <laughs> he must have really thought she was something because, I mean, I still think his voice is bothered by that meal to this day. <sighs> Some, the insides are well preserved from all that salt. <laughs> Jess, if you're watching this back, I apologize. Where was I? Oh, no, yeah, appropriate amounts of salt. Salt brings out flavor. Um, 
The church is meant to be a preserving agent to culture that is prone to decay. Can we all say amen to that? The culture is prone to decay. It is also meant to be an ingredient that draws out the true flavor of all that God created. We should be celebrating and showing the world what God's, how good God is, how good his creation is. That should be, should be written all over us. Yet so often, instead of being the salt of the earth, the church in its history has salted the earth. To salt the earth is to destroy the productivity and future prospects of a city with the intended goal of its total destruction now and in the future. Now, how does a church do that? What was the purpose of that? The purpose of doing that was to cause a conquered people to be reliant on the conquerors for their everything. And we see this throughout church history, how the church has dominated the culture to the point of domineering the culture and causing people to have to come to them for everything. And then the church politics, rather than the word of God, become preeminent. It's a total bully move. So we got to be careful that we don't do that. We got to be, we want to permeate the culture, but we don't want to um, be that, you know, that bullhorn-toting, Bible-thumping, annoying Christian. Live it out. Be what God has called us to be. And uh, be careful with the, with the power that you have. We talked about it last week when we talked about meekness. Just because you have power doesn't mean you have the right to exude that power. Just because you have the right answer doesn't mean you have the, uh, the right to kill people with the right answer. We have to be careful how we treat people. And we're going to talk about that a lot as the, as the Sermon on the Mount continues. God wants us to be the salt of the earth, preserving and enhancing. Preserving and enhancing. Next, light. Salt and light. He uses this phrase, this phrase, city on a hill. This title, I should say, city on a hill. Jesus is referring to a particular city. That a city on a hill cannot be hidden, right? This particular city that he's talking about would have swelled the listeners with pride because he's referring to Jerusalem, a city on a hill. It can, when you came into the vicinity of Jerusalem, there was no way you could deny where you were. And I'll tell you why. It's pretty awesome. Jerusalem was built on a series of hills that had for centuries been combined to accommodate the city and the Temple Mount. Ancient descriptions, actual ancient descriptions of pilgrims approaching the city talk about how when the light struck the gold of the temple, which was the largest structure on the highest point of the city, it was almost blinding to look at, like a beacon that could, not, that could be seen for miles around. It was spectacular. So he's saying to his, his contemporary audience, we got to be Jerusalem with feet. Where, what was Jerusalem? It was where God dwelled. 
We're supposed to be a city on a hill. We're supposed to be the Jerusalem that Israel was meant to be, to be the presence of God with legs, taking God's presence everywhere. And now we know now on the other side of, of the resurrection that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. So the veil of the temple is torn. There's no need for that anymore. The geographical location of God exists wherever you are. That's cool. That's really cool. If we're actually being that city on a hill. If you're being it, you can't hide it. People are going to start saying things like, what is different with you? Why are you this? Why don't you get angry with this? Why don't you do this? Why don't you? Well, it's because I read the greatest sermon ever preached. Jesus is why I don't do those things. He lives in me. I think it's pretty cool. Then he goes into this metaphor of the lamp. Right? He says this. Um, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. Now, this is another historical thing. Have you ever seen a first century lamp? It looks like what Will Smith came out of in Aladdin. The genie's lamp, the kind of, the idea that... Uh, that's what the oil in the lamp, and it had a little flame over here, the little handle here. And that lamp was really all that they had to light their home with after the sun went down. And these homes in the first century were typically one or two rooms at the most, and, and most of, unless you're really wealthy. Um, so what they would do is they would take the lamp, they'd light it, and it would give light to wherever it was shining, so they would stick it high on a, on, on a piece of furniture called a lampstand. Not hard to understand, because then that would, the light could cascade farther, and there wouldn't be so much shadow and things like that. But how do you put out that lamp? It's not like a, a wick that you would put out, like a, a candle, that you could blow out. It was, it was, it was fueled by oil in that lamp, so it's going to be persistent, Right? So they would put a basket over it, or they put a cover over it. Could be made out of wood, could be made out of anything. They would put it, and they would snuff it. So if you want the light to shine, you've got to let it, let it put it up on the stand and let it go. If you want it to go out, put it under a basket. Nobody in their right, he's basically saying, this is a ridiculous statement, because nobody in their right mind puts a basket over the light that they want to shine. That would put it out. Now, what happens that causes that light to go out when you snuff it? What is removed? Come on. All you scientists out there. Oxygen. You need oxygen to keep flames going. You need fuel, you need oxygen. When you remove the oxygen, the flame actually burns out all the oxygen in that little space, and it causes it to Go out. Might it be that the cathedrals 
the church buildings. The American Eagles, I don't know. <laughs> That's what we're in right now. The, the, the facilities that we've put the church in have removed the oxygen from the room. Because we think of this as church. This is not church. Did you realize that? This is, this is not church. You are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. Not the, not the sign on the marquee, not the big logos with, you know, with our leaf plastered all over there. My, my, my uh, staff always makes fun of me because I put the leaf on everything. Leaf toilet paper. I don't know. New life toilet paper. Uh, there's a leaf everywhere. But that's not the church. That's just clever marketing. That's not the church. You're the church. So what happened over the millennia is that we associated church with a place, with a building, and we're essentially taking all the light that's out there and we're putting it under a basket for two hours on a Sunday. If you're really Pentecostal, four hours on a Sunday. If you're really, really Pentecostal, you have Sunday night church. Elizabeth said, amen. See what I'm saying? We've taken all those lights and we've put them in there. We said, we had church today. Did you go to church? What church do you go to? It's not church. It's a gathering of the light so that we can stoke one another up. We can be in the spirit together and we can get, we can get all stoked up and ready to be the light of the world. Did you hear me today? Now, I love this. Please don't get me wrong. I love this. But I've said it a thousand times. This is not the game. This is the 30-second timeout that allows us to worship together, to get fired up so that we can have the energy to go back into the game, to go back into the world, to be the church everywhere God intended us to be the church. You know how I know this is true? Because it's really hard to do. Anything that's true and worth doing is hard to do. It's so easy to be a Christian in here today. And if you're faking it till you make it, God bless you. I'm with you. Sometimes we need that. I'm just going <laughs> to, it's called a sacrifice of praise sometimes. I'm not feeling it, but I'm going to lift my hands and I'm going to worship because I need it. But it's so easy to be a Christian in here. People will actually look at you and go, wow, that guy's a really good Christian because he was into it. I wish I was that good of a Christian. I wish I wasn't so nervous. We don't know that he goes back into his, 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 his uh, job and he has the most filthy mouth in his company. Treats his employers like garbage, empl employees like garbage. Steals from his company. But on Sunday morning, man, he's dialed in. Mr. Holy, he's the church. It's really easy to be the church in here. It's really hard to be the church out there when everybody's trying to blow you out. That's why we know that this is not the church. This is just an opportunity for you and I to come together, to be in the presence of God together, to get fueled up and ready to hit the streets and be the light of the world be the preserving salt of our culture that we are called to be. 
city set on the hill cannot be hidden. You put that lampstand. You don't let the oxygen out of the room. You don't snuff it out. You put it on a lampstand in your company. In your home. In your school. You stick that thing up on a lampstand in your school. I tell you what, guys, people are going to go, what's with that guy? What's with that girl? You put that that light on a lampstand in your workplace, I guarantee it's funny because you'll start things will start happening. Um, my wife works for a, uh, a big company. I won't give them any advertisement today, but a big company. She's an accountant for them. And um, it's funny because she's the only person that when she's in the room, people apologize for using foul language. Oh, 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 Lisa, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Lisa's in the room, guys. I think that's funny. People don't even do that for me. People don't even do that for me. I don't know why, but for her, like, oh, look, Lisa, guys, guys, Lisa's in the room. Okay. I don't know. What, what, does that say? what does that even say? Somebody's seeing something about her that says, you know what? It, it causes them to check themselves. Now they're going to go in the next room and probably do whatever they want to do. That's fine. That's not her job to go follow that guy and say, don't do that in here either. That's not her job. Her job is to just, wherever she is, to shine the light of Christ. And what happens is people start to notice. And you know what that turns into? When crisis happens in people's lives. They don't go to the person who's dark, because they feel dark, they go to the person who's got some light in them. And Lisa's had the opportunity to do that from time to time. I've had the opportunity to do that. And I'm sure many of you have as well. When time gets tough, they, they go for the shiny ones. Like a moth to the flame. All part of the plan. No. Uh. But seriously, they go, they go to the light, and they want to know, how are you? How do you deal with this stuff? I saw you go through this stressful time. I want, I want what you got. Well, perfect. His name is Jesus. Lord, thank you for this time we can be together as a church. Lord, I thank you for the facility that you, your facilities you provided for us. I don't want to kind of down that. Thank you for the facilities you provided us so that we can meet. But God, I pray, Lord, that we would understand that that's all that they are. They're really, really, they're really blessings for us to enjoy, not an identity for us to keep. We are the church. Your Holy Spirit resides in this building when your people are in this building. And then when we leave, Lord, help us to take the light of your gospel, the light of your hope, your truth, your way into the world with us. God, I pray that every Sunday morning, Lord, it would be an opportunity for us to, to, to combine the fire that is in us and just stoke it up 
Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would fan the flames every Sunday morning when we come in this place so that we can, by your Spirit, have the strength and the wisdom and the compassion to be cities on a hill, to be the temple of your Holy Spirit, the legs on. God, I pray that we would be careful with how we salt the earth, that we would be salt of the earth, not salt the earth, that we would be people of compassion and care and love, preserve and bring flavor, and not destruction and hopelessness. God, help us to shine your light everywhere we Amen. God bless. Have a wonderful week. Shine that light. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Go into the week. God bless you.